um, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, it was about 15 years ago, um, almost to the month, probably within the month, that I uh, drove from northern Wisconsin in a big Penske truck uh, with my sister, Beth Ann, and her husband, Steve, to move them down here to Irmo, South Carolina, um, and help them move down here. And I just wanted to start off by saying thank you uh, to you as a church. Um, you, you all have ministered so much to my sister and her husband and family over the years, uh, particularly over the last uh, six months in her battle with cancer. Um, so thank you uh, from her brother. All right, um, uh, a little bit more about me. Uh, my name is uh, Ben, and I have a wife, Candace, who is not with us this morning. Um, my, my son, oldest son, J.D., is here with me. Uh, he is eight years old, uh, almost nine. I have four other children who are not with, with us this morning. I have Jeremy, who's uh, six years old, uh, Kamala, who's four, Kyla, who's three, and Mackenzie, who is just four months old. Um, so we are, we are in a busy stage of life right now as a family, but very blessed um, to have uh, uh, all of those kids. Now, up on the screen, you, say, you see Relentless Love, and it says the Minor Prophets. We're not going to cover all of the Minor Prophets this morning. We're actually just going to focus on one Minor Prophet, the Prophet Obadiah. Uh, but, but, but before I jump into that, um, let me just ask you this question. Have you ever noticed how often, how often siblings tend to fight with each other? Um, I, I worked uh, back when I was in high school with two brothers. Um, and one of the brothers was my age and another one was three years older than him. And we, would, we, we worked uh, maintenance. Uh, we laid mulch um, at a particular organization, um, mostly in the summers. And every day at 10 o'clock, we would take a break. And, and inevitably... Um, during our break, these two brothers would begin debating and discussing something, and it didn't really matter what they were discussing, but it would always devolve into, I'm stronger than you, no, I'm stronger than you, and then they would begin fighting with each other, often just physically pushing each other and wrestling, and, and I was just sitting there awkwardly observing that. Um, but, but they were your typical fighting siblings. Now, here's the interesting thing, though, about fighting siblings. And some of you know, may know where I'm headed with this. They would fight with each other, but they were also fiercely loyal to each other against other people, right? So that's the thing about fighting siblings. They, they, they're willing to fight with each other, but they're also fiercely loyal to each other. Now, here's the reason I start off with that illustration, because the prophet that we're going to look at this morning, Obadiah, addresses one of two fighting nations. And these two fighting nations actually descended from two fighting siblings. And these two fighting siblings were actually fighting one another when they were in their mother's womb. That's not even a joke, and we'll come back to that in a minute. The other reason I started off with this illustration is because it's it's kind of a maybe a bit crude way of, of illustrating the way God deals with his people. Now, God is not immature with his people like a fighting sibling, but God does discipline his people. And throughout the minor prophets, you see many examples of that. But at the same time, God is 
fiercely loyal to his people. He loves them with a relentless love, which we see throughout the minor prophets as well, and we'll see in the book of Obadiah in particular. And that is really the theme of the book of Obadiah. Um, The theme is God's relentless love fights on behalf of his people. Let's see. There we go. God's relentless love fights on behalf of his people. Now, let me point out some things about Obadiah here at the beginning. Sometimes the minor prophets can seem somewhat distant to us, so let's, let's kind of get to know the book of Obadiah for a minute here at the beginning before we actually jump into it. The first thing I want to do is just mention something about the minor prophets in general. When you hear the word minor prophets, sometimes we can think less important prophets. Uh, The minor prophets are not minor in that they're less important. They're simply minor in that they're shorter in length. So you see here um, that if you take all the minor prophets together, the number of words in all of them, it's actually less than than the major prophet of Isaiah itself. Um, And in this way, Obadiah could be considered the most minor of all the minor prophets. Um, It's the shortest one. It probably fits on maybe on a single page on your Bible or just over a page, um, just 699 words. So it's it's a short prophecy, but its message is incredibly important, especially if you want to know the difference between being a friend of God and being an enemy of God. There may not be any question that is more important for us to answer in our lives, whether we are a friend of God or whether we are an enemy of God. And Obadiah helps us with that important question. One of the other uh, unique things about Obadiah, particularly in relation to the other prophets, is that Obadiah is not addressed directly to God's people. Now you see here um, on a chart that the, the, the rest of the prophets are directly addressing God's people. And Obadiah stands kind of uniquely in that it's actually not addressed to God's people. It's addressed to God's enemies, in particular, uh, a very specific nation um, that was part of the enemies of God's people. And we'll come back to that nation in just a minute. In fact, um, it's, it's unique in that we don't know much about Obadiah himself. Other than that, Obadiah's name just means servant of Yahweh. And so in this way, Obadiah is is uniquely a message directly from God to his enemies. Now, I said it's directed to his enemies, but it's directed to a particular nation. Now, what nation is that? Well, Obadiah is directed to the nation of Edom. Now, I want to answer three questions about Edom. Again, if you'll continue with me in this kind of extended introduction, um, I want to answer three questions about Edom that I think, again, will be helpful to us as we kind of enter into the prophecy of Obadiah. The first question is where? Where is Edom? Well, Edom, you can see here on this map, is just southeast of the nation of Israel or of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. More importantly, Um, Edom had a particular area of it, um, which you see here circled, which was a mountainous region in the western part of Edom. And this gave Edom somewhat of a geographical advantage over other nations. If If you're fighting against the other nation and you're up in the mountains, that's an advantage to you over that nation as they're trying to trying to come. It kind of 
It kind of set their western border, gave them a geographical advantage. They, they even lived in this area. And, and this is important because this contributed to one of the attitudes that God directly addresses in the, book of, or in the prophecy of Obadiah. For example, in verse 3, if you're turned there, he says, You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? All right, so this is, this is where Edom was. Secondly, let me just answer the question, who? Who were the Edomites? Where did they come from? Why did they land here? Well, the Edomites were descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. You remember Jacob and Esau? Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and Esau's name was changed to Edom. You'll actually, and that's important to know that, 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 that the Edomites came from Esau because you'll, you'll see God refer to the Edomites by many different names throughout the prophecy of Obadiah. He'll refer to them as Edom, as Esau, as Mount Esau, and as even as Teman, which was a city in Edom. All referring, and all of these names are referring to the nation of Edom. But this rivalry between, you remember the rivalry between Jacob and his brother Esau, this rivalry didn't start when, when Jacob and Esau were, uh, were, were siblings with each other. It literally started, we're told, when they were in their mother's womb. Let me, re- let me just remind you of this. Rebecca, you remember, was the, ro- the wife of Isaac. Isaac was the promised son of Abraham. So Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. Then you have Isaac and Rebecca. Again, there's a, a family line being promised through them, but, they're, but they don't have any children. It says Rebekah was barren. In Genesis 25, 21, we read, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Then the, listen to what it says next. The children struggled within her. Now, this obviously surprised her because Rebekah says to the Lord, If it is thus, or if, if, we're, if we prayed and now... I conceived and I have children. Why is this happening inside of me? She says, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and this is the Lord's answer to her. He says, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And then almost like a a living illustration of what God had just said about this this conflict that's going to come between these two brothers. Um, in Genesis 25, 25, we read, the first one came out red, so they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So they called his name Jacob. We read on in the next chapter how Jacob manipulates his brother Esau into selling him his birthright. And then after that, in Genesis chapter 27, we read how Jacob deceives his father Isaac into blessing him rather than blessing his older brother Esau. And this leads to our third thing about Edom, just for a little bit of context. What did the Edomites think about the Israelites? Well, the answer is that this, this rivalry that started, started out as a sibling rivalry turned very dark. The Edomites hated their brothers, the Israelites. Now, in some sense... The Edomites should have known better than anyone else 
not to hate the Israelites, right? They knew the promises of God to his people, at least at one time. But God is going to hold the Edomites responsible for his venomous attacks on his people. Now, Edom attacked the Israelites many times throughout their history, but it seems like he's focusing in in this particular prophecy when the Edomites participated with Babylon when Babylon took the Israelites captive in 586 BC. This was one of the darkest days of the nation of Israel when the southern kingdom of Judah was taken captive and the Israelites were taken into exile in Babylon and the Edomites participated in that. And we'll come back to that as we read through the prophecy. So this is the who, where, and what of Edom that this prophecy is directed towards. It's a It's a prophecy to a foreign nation in which God promises to avenge all of the wrongs done to his people. That's the theme of Obadiah. That's why I summarized it this way. God's relentless love fights on behalf of his people. So what I'd like to do right now is pray and ask that God would help us as we look at this. And then I'm I'm actually going to read through the entire prophecy because it's very short and then we'll look at it together. So let's pray. God, these are your words. Thank you for writing a book for us. Thank you for clearly revealing to us who you are in your word, your perfect character. So as we come to your word now, help us to understand your words rightly. Help us to delight in your word continually and help us to respond to your word faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I encourage you to look um, at your Bibles with me or if you don't uh, have a Bible with you, I am going to put the words up here on the screen as we go through it. But let's read through Obadiah together. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up! Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, Though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have a trap set beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Temen, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, 
you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his, his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall, con- shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be called ho- and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house, of Ish- the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there shall, no, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. For those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in the Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. All right, let's look at this uh, prophecy together. And the first thing that we learn in the prophecy of Obadiah is that God fights against his enemies. And we see this in verses 1 through 16. Now, the very fact that those words are up there on that screen is very countercultural today. Our world doesn't like to think of God as someone who has enemies. Our world likes to think of God's love and God's acceptance. But if we are going to take God at his word and believe it what and believe what it says, then we must affirm that there are certain people, real people in the world that God considers his friends and very real people in the world that God considers his enemies. Look at verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. So here we read of this report going around other nations that are kind of stirring themselves up to fight against the nation of Edom. But what I want you to notice is that before and after this report that we read about in verse 2, we see the very hand of God at work. Verse 1 says, we have heard a report from whom? We heard a report from the Lord. And then what, is he, what do we read after the report's made? The Lord says, I will make you small among the nations. God 
has enemies. So nations are going to attack Edom, but God is the one who is going to make Edom small among the nations. Here's something that we need to all realize as we sit here this morning. God is sovereign, and God has every single king and nation at his disposal to use however he wants to use to carry out his plan on the earth. Daniel 2.21 says that God removes kings and he sets up kings. So how long is a king going to reign? Until God's done with him. Acts 17.26 says that God made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God is sovereign over all the earth, and he will use everything that he has at his disposal to carry out his good plan on the earth to bring himself glory and for the good of his people. Now this should bring great comfort to us who are God's people. Great comfort to us. And it should bring great terror to God's enemies. Well, God's enemies are described for us in detail here in the first part of Obadiah. And the first thing that we're told about God's enemies is, is about their character. And their character can be summed up in this word, pride. He says that right here at the beginning of verse 3, that their character is full of, of pride. And notice how he insightfully points out for us that pride is not ultimately an issue of our actions externally, but pride is first an issue of what's going on in our hearts. He says the pride of your heart has deceived you. You remember when Jesus was talking in the Sermon on the Mount and he talks about how, how sin isn't just a matter of externals, but it's a matter of what's going on in our hearts. Sometimes people think that that was kind of a new thing, a, a new kind of teaching, but Obadiah shows us that that's not the case. Our sin has always been an issue of what's going on in our hearts first. In the root, in the root of pride is that we want to make ourselves God. We want to do what we want to do and we don't want anyone else telling us what to do. Look at what he says in verse 3. This is the attitude of the Edomites that's coming from their heart. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? The Edomites thought that they were in complete control, but they were absolutely deceived. Isn't that what pride does? Pride deceives us into thinking things are true that actually are not true. He says the pride of your heart has deceived you. So I have, I have two sons, uh, J.D. and Jeremy. Um, they're eight and six right now. But when they were five and three, uh, my wife and I we're playing a game with them. We like to play games at our house. We were playing a game um, that's called uh, Phase 10 Dice. You roll some dice and you get some points depending on how you put combinations of, of numbers together. Well, anyway, we were playing this game together as a family and JD understood it pretty well as a five-year-old. Um, Jeremy, my three-year-old son, didn't quite get it. 
Um, and so we were trying to help him on his turn to be able to get some points on his turn. Well, Jeremy didn't want any part of that. Um, he, he and his little three-year-old independent self wanted to play the game the way he wanted to play the game. He wanted to roll the dice and keep which ones he wanted. And so my wife and I said, you know what? <coughs> we're going to let Jeremy just take his turn however he wants when it's his turn and, and stop trying to force him to, to do better. So we let him do what he wanted to do, and he proceeded to roll and get far less points than he would have gotten otherwise. But, but in his little three-year-old triumphant self, he raised his hands in the air and he said, Mommy, I'm beasting it. And uh, Candace looked at me and smiled. And, and as we were smiling at each other, she said, ignorance is bliss. Or in the words of Obadiah, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride deceives us. It deceives us into thinking things are true that actually aren't true. Things like, I'm in complete control of my life. Well, God goes on in a bit of satire to speak about the way the Edomites viewed themselves. You'll notice this in verse 4. Look at the language that God uses as he talks about. He, he, he kind of takes the Edomites at their word and he says, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, and though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down declares the Lord. So this is the first thing that we learn about God's enemies. We learn about their character, where their hearts are at. Their hearts are full of pride. Pride is deceptive, and we all, we all face this important question in our lives, the same question that the Edomites faced. Am I going to attempt to make myself God, or am I going to submit my life to the one true God. I think this is probably the most popular religion in America, self-religion. I'm going to do what I want to do and who will bring me down to the ground. Everyone serves and worships someone. We're either going to choose to serve and worship ourselves or we are going to serve and worship the one true God. Now, I think it could be easy for us to think, think through these things and, and think only of our surrounding culture and, and how we see evidences of this in our surrounding culture. But I think, I think we need to look internally at our own hearts, at where our own hearts are at. Where are, where are our hearts in relation to God? Because the more truth we know, the more truth we've received, the more responsible we are to respond to that truth. And, and just because we're receiving truth and just because we're positioning ourselves in a, in, a, in a space to receive truth doesn't mean that there's actually good going on in our hearts, right? Isaiah makes this point in Isaiah 29, 13, when, when the Lord says to his people that they praise the Lord with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. So just positioning ourselves around God's truth doesn't mean that we're actually actively responding to that truth. So let me ask you some really practical questions for your life as you sit here this morning. What happens in your heart as you sit and receive God's word each week? Do you respond to God's word 
Or do you, like James describes, you see yourself clearly in a mirror and then leave forgetting what you just saw? Do you listen to God's words preached weekly, but then think that you know better than what God is saying and think that you're okay and not in any need of change? I think that one of the greatest dangers of sitting in church every week is thinking that the action of sitting in church every week makes us one of God's friends. Think of Jesus' message to those who hear the truth. Jesus, in, when he was on the earth, said that if, if you hear the truth, if you, if you are exposed to the truth, and yet you are unchanged by the truth, that it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the final day than for you. He says that in Matthew 10 and 11. So one of the most important things you'll ever do in your life is sit and listen to the very words of God explained and applied. And yet, maybe more important than that is responding to those words in faith and repentance and obedience. So let me encourage you, who are my brothers and sisters here, to respond weekly to the words of God that you're hearing. Repent of sin. Have faith in, in the promises of God that he's giving you through his words. Share with one another what God is doing in your lives through his word and ask each other, uh, what's God doing in your life? What is he teaching you through his word? What are you learning? And discuss this together. God's enemies, on the other hand, are characterized by pride, thinking that they know better than God. And while pride begins in our heart, like we said earlier, it always begins, sin is always beginning by taking root in our heart, it, it inevitably produces actions that, that flow from the heart. Sin begins in the heart, but it, but it produces fruit in like kind. And so secondly, we learn in Obadiah of the actions of God's enemies. And this is simply what we learn, that God's enemies fight against God's people. We see this clearly in the language of verse 10. If you look down at verse 10 with me, notice he starts off verse 10 and he says, because of the violence done to your brother J Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. Edom attacked Israel multiple times throughout its history. I think he's probably referring here to what I said earlier when the Edomites per, per, uh, participated with Babylon when Babylon took Israel captive and took the Israelites into exile. Notice what he says in verse 11. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Now, then he goes on to detail Edomites' attitude, the Edom's attitudes and actions as a part of that time. And I'm just going to read through verses 12 through 14 again. And I want you to notice the defensive language that God, that God has here on behalf of his people. Listen, listen to how committed God is to defending his people in these words in his prophecy against Edom here in verses 12 through 14. Listen to this as I read it again. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice 
over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of his distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. What's described here could be considered Jerusalem's darkest day. One of the lowest points of God's people in all of the Old Covenant. And I think that we need to remember that there were real people involved in what he's describing here. There were real Israelites who were fleeing Jerusalem, trying to get away from the Babylonians as they were attacking God's people. <coughs> and there were real Edomites who, who hid at real places and captured those Israelites and turned them back into the Babylonians as they were attacked. And here's what I think we are to take from, from this, from these words from God here in Obadiah. God sees the mistreatment of his people. God sees when his people are mistreated by their enemies. And he will not stand for it. God will bring justice to his people either in this life or the next life because God is relentlessly committed to his people. God saw when our 21 brothers were beheaded by the Islamic State in Libya back in 2015, even as they were praying in Jesus' name. God sees the tens of thousands of North Korean Christians who are put in prison for their faith in Jesus Christ. God sees you, young adult, when you stand up for Christ to your friends or your co-workers and you're mistreated for it. God sees, believer, when you tell your neighbor or co-worker that you believe there is absolute truth in Scripture and you're scoffed at for it or labeled a bigot or intolerant. God sees it. In fact, listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. That's one of the most crazy statements in all of Scripture. Rejoice. And be glad when you're mistreated, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God sees every mistreatment of his people, and be sure of this, he will bring justice because God is relentlessly committed to his people. And that's the message of Obadiah. But I also think that this text should cause us to ask this question of ourselves. 
if this is God's commitment to his people, what does my commitment to God's people look like? Right? If, if this is how committed God is to his people, then, then I, in some sense, as a Christian, should be just as committed to God's people as God is. And so let me ask some questions that will hopefully help us to consider where our hearts are at towards God's people. Let me ask these questions. Do you work, do you work towards the flourishing and blessing of God's people around you? Those of you particularly who are members of Kennerly Road Baptist Church, are you actively involved in, in spiritually encouraging relationships with other brothers and sisters in this church? I think one of the reasons that God gave us local churches was so that you would have a, a group of people to be relentlessly committed to in a very similar way that God is relentlessly committed to his people. So very practically, if you haven't yet, if you don't, if you don't have this yet, let me encourage you to find a brother or sister in your church family who you can get together with regularly. Pray together, read scripture together, read a Christian book together, and encourage one another in your faith on a regular basis. God is relentlessly committed to his people, and so should we be. God's enemies, on the other hand, work against his people and work for their destruction, and this is described to us throughout this first part of Obadiah. And God will not tolerate this. Look at what God says in verses 5 through 9. Let me just point out a couple phrases here. He, he actually speaks of a coming destruction of Edom as if that destruction has already happened. Notice in verse 5 he says, how you have been destroyed. Right? He's talking as if it's already happened because it's so, it's so certain that it will happen in the future. In verse 6, he says, how Esau has been pillaged. Well, it hasn't happened yet, but, but it's so sure that it's going to happen that he talks about it as if it's already happened. God will have his way. He even says that Edom's former allies will turn against them. Look at verse 7. Those at peace with you have deceived you. So we learn in this chapter that God's enemies are doubly deceived. They're they're deceived in their hearts by their own pride, and they're also deceived by others who are around them. Verses 8 and 9 go on to say that those in whom Edom trusted, the wise and the mighty, will not be able to save them. Look at verses 8 and 9. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, declares the Lord destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. God has enemies, and he will defeat them. And then in verse 15, we read that Edom, this, the, what he, everything that he's saying about Edom is really just an illustration of what God's going to do to all of his enemies. Look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. <coughs> As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This phrase, the day of the Lord, 
is a common one throughout the prophets. It's a, it's a phrase that's used to indicate times when God is going to break into history to act in a decisive way for his people and against his enemies. And it particularly indicates God's dealings with those two groups of people on the final day. God in his perfect justice is going to make everything right either in this life or on the final day. And there's a bit of irony in God's declaration of judgment here, particularly in verse 16. Look at the beginning of verse 16. It says, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, Edom had drunk a cup of celebration in Jerusalem when they participated in the ransacking of Jerusalem by Babylon. And God says to them, You did lift a cup of celebration Yet, look at verse 16, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall, shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So God's point here is that they previously had lifted this cup of celebration over Jerusalem, but God was going to give them a cup to drink, but it was not going to be a cup of celebration. Rather, it would be a cup of wrath for them to drink. That's why he says they shall be as though they had never been. You know, those who set themselves against God often seem to drink temporary cups of celebration, don't they? Doesn't it seem sometimes like God's enemies are are often prospering? I was actually, uh, J.D. and I were listening to some Proverbs on our way down here. And in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 31, let's see here, I think it's, 30 and 31 jumped out to me, or sorry, 31 and 32 uh, jumped out to me because, because those who set themselves against God sometimes do seem to prosper. And, and, it, and you know, I was talking to JD about this and it, and it seems like sometimes they're wealthy, sometimes they have power, and it would be tempting of us to say like, man, like I wish I, wish I could have what they had. Listen to what Proverbs 3, verses 31 and 32 says. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. So don't envy the wicked who may seem to lift up temporary cups of celebration because Obadiah reminds us of these truths that God is just and God has enemies and he will fight them and he will win. This is the message of the first part of Obadiah. God's relentless love fights on behalf of his people. And as often is the case in the minor prophets, the final verses of Obadiah, these last several verses, end on a more positive note. In these verses, we learn whom specifically God is fighting for. God fights on behalf of his people. Look at verse 17. You see this contrasting word at the very beginning. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. And look, listen to this kind of promise-oriented language of this verse. In Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. 
So in contrast here to the Israelites who attempted escape, but were captured by the Edomites and turned back into the Babylonians, in the end, God says that he will finally deliver his people. We have a taste of this in Christ, but there will come a day when God will finally deliver his people. And it says, Mount Zion shall be holy. In other words, God will dwell with his people like he always intended to. So God promises here that he will finally deliver his people to their promised place to be with him forever. So I think one of the things we need to see here from the prophecy of Obadiah is that God makes promises to his people and he will keep them to his people. He's, he's kept his promises so far all throughout scripture. He promised here in the book of Obadiah that Edom would be destroyed and within a couple hundred years this prophecy was fulfilled. And it's at this time in history that it almost seemed like maybe God was giving up on his people when they're taken into exile, that God promises, him, promises them that he's not done with them and that he will finally deliver them. And there's this great turn of events. God's people who had previously defeated, he says, will now be victorious, and those who once seemed victorious will be judged. Verse 18 makes this clear. I've got to work with some of the language here. He says, The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau is going to be stubble. They, that's Israel, shall burn them, that's Edom, and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. Again, that's Edom, for the Lord has spoken. And then in verse 21, he says, Saviors or deliverers, shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. So again, there's this great turn of events. It seemed like the Edomites were prospering, but their end is going to be destruction. It seemed like God's people were being destroyed, but their end is going to be victorious. Verses 19 and 20 just highlight this even more. Um, they can kind of seem confusing to us. Verses 19 and 20 include a lot of location names, and, and they're not places that are familiar to us. So it's kind of hard for us to navigate what exactly is being said here. But to the original ears, these verses would have been crystal clear to them. Because in verses 19 and 20, God names places in the east, Mount Esau and Gilead. He names places in the west, the Philistines. He names places in the north, Zarephath, and places in the south, the Negev. So he's naming places in all directions. And he describes his people possessing a land space that stretched even farther and wider than under the days of the united monarchy under David and Solomon. In other words, God is promising his people's restoration and that it's going to be real and tangible and definite. God fights for his people and will fulfill all of his promises to them. Now, in conclusion, I want to just point, to, point you to the final phrase of this prophecy. The very end of verse 21. Look at what it says. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. What a fitting conclusion. It's almost like a, a summary statement of everything that he just said in the rest of the prophecy. It's kind of like a, a summary statement of, of all of Scripture in a sense. 
The kingdom is going to be the Lord's. These are the final words. So if you, if you don't take away anything else from the sermon this morning, take away these words. The kingdom is the Lord's. Now maybe you're here this morning listening to these things and, and you're, you're hearing what, what God is saying through Obadiah about him fighting against his enemies and destroying his enemies. And, and maybe you're just sitting here thinking like, man, what an, what an angry and judgmental God. Well, friend, if that's you, let me introduce you to Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh who willingly came and was treated as an enemy of God so that the enemies of God could be treated as friends of God. You see, we're, we're all born naturally enemies of God. We are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2 says. And we're, we're, children, we're, we're children of wrath by nature and by choice. All of us set ourselves against God and, and all of us at some point in our lives say to, say to God, I'm going to be my own God and who will bring me down to the ground? And because of that, all of us deserve to drink the cup of wrath that God describes in verse 16 about all the nations who set themselves against him. All of us deserve to drink that cup of wrath that is set aside for everyone who sets themselves against God. But Jesus came, and do you remember what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said this, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, for the second time, this is Matthew 26, he went away and prayed, My Father... If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Friend, Jesus drained that cup of wrath for everyone who will turn from their sins and turn to him in faith. He gets the cup of wrath and then he takes a cup of celebration and he says to all of, this, all of us who follow him, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So the Edomites lifted a cup of celebration, but would end up with a cup of wrath. Jesus drank a cup of wrath so that we could lift a cup of celebration. I don't know if you know this song, but I think it summarizes this truth really well. The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. The agonies, the agonies, the wrath, the agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your Son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. Father's wrath, completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. God welcomes to his table 
all those who come to him in repentance and faith. If you're a believer here, let me ask you this question. How do you view God? When you think about God and your relationship with him, how do you view him? Do you, do you view God as relentlessly committed to you? Do you view him as relentlessly committed to you? As your defender, as someone who's going to run to fulfill all of the good promises that he's given you in his word? Maybe you're going through a difficult time which has brought doubts into your mind about God's good care for you. An unexpected diagnosis, tension or strain in your family or other relationships, maybe a a difficult job situation. If that's you, hear the message of Obadiah that God is relentlessly committed to you. Maybe you've been mistreated by someone, maybe by an unbelieving friend or a family member. In fact, just this last week, a lady at my church uh, emailed me and she told me that her brother, her grown brother, was attacking her parents and spreading lies about them on social media. And she asked me how she should respond to that. I just want to, I'm going to read you part of my response to her because I want to help you see that this is real life stuff for us to be thinking rightly about all of these things. Here's what I said to her. I said, during our series on Romans, we went through the book of Romans last year as a church. Some some verses that jumped out to me and encouraged me were Romans 12, 18, and 19, which you'll see have a lot to do with what we just said. Romans 12, 18, and 19 say, "If, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's what I said to her. I don't think these verses mean that we should never defend ourselves. But what I do think they mean is that whether we choose to defend ourselves or not, God himself will make all things right either in this life or the next. God sees the wrong treatment that you and your family are facing. It grieves him and it even angers him too. And he will make everything right in the end. God's relentless love fights on behalf of his people. I hope that you'll go from here this morning trusting in the good and loving God who fights for you. Let's pray. God, these are overwhelming truths that that you would care for us. We, we know ourselves almost too well to even hope that you would care for us. And yet, this is what you tell us in your word. So I ask for those here this morning that you would help them to turn from their sin and turn to you in faith. If there's, no, if there's someone here who's never done that, help them to do that this morning. And for any brothers and sisters here who are your people, help them to to view you in, in, in all of your commitment to them. Help them to trust you through all of the ups and downs. Help them to persevere and to, and to live out the miracle that, that you tell us in the Sermon on the Mount to, to rejoice even when we are mistreated, for great is our reward in heaven. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.